Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Pod Medic, and we have a full house in the sh- in the show tonight. Uh, all our friends are in town, as it were, and uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into a great episode that I am looking forward to bringing to you. But before we can do that, as we do every week, we bring in our amazing co-host Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. Yes, you're right. I mean, we're lucky to have everybody this close to a major holiday, but uh, but we have them. We have Dr. Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, guys. Good to see everybody. And the uh, traveling to Podwins, especially Becky. <laughs> How are you, Vex? Doing good. Doing good. Gearing up for travel next week with the holiday. So we're trying to uh, assess go. our travel around the weather and see if we need to make some changes. Dan can talk about that. Yeah, well, you certainly know about that better than most. How's your little one? She's doing good. She's walking, so. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep. uh, walking or running? Not running yet. We've, we've just entered into the walking phase, but it's come with, you know, the bumps and the bruises. and <laughs> give her a day or two, yeah. Yeah. So, Dan. <laughs> Hello, Dan. Good so, evening. Hello. So so I think everybody wants to know what's going on with the weather for next week. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. So obviously the big, big holiday, Thanksgiving, and a lot of people traveling around Thanksgiving, not just on the day before Wednesday, but we, we've seen travel uh, patterns really shift a bit since COVID even, where people travel really starting now um, through the entire week. So Big travel weeks. So the weather obviously very important for that. A um, couple things to keep in mind here as we head through the next week or so is that looks like unfortunately there will be a pretty major storm that's going to impact um, a lot of the U.S. Uh, starting on Monday. So Monday, Tuesday, and t- can talk through that briefly. But um, looks like it tracks from the Southern Plains, so Texas and that area, up into the Great Lakes by late Tuesday into Wednesday. Biggest risks for that are. Severe thunderstorms in places like maybe Dallas could impact flights there on Monday um, and then farther east on Tuesday. So uh, portions of the Mississippi Valley into the Tennessee Valley, like Nashville, maybe on on Tuesday, where you couldn't have impacts from severe thunderstorms. That's obviously not just a flight issue, but traveling on roads and obviously other safety um, issues there with that. Farther north, I think it's mostly rain, um, at least for the beginning part of that storm. So places like Chicago or Indianapolis and uh, it's going to be, it looks like a wet day on Tuesday, uh, turning windy as well. That rain moves into the Northeast later Tuesday. So it's going to turn wet and, and windy in the big cities of the Northeast Tuesday into Wednesday. So Boston all the way down to DC could have flight issues on, um, Tuesday and Wednesday as well. Chicago airports, uh, definitely flight issues Tuesday and Wednesday with rain and then turning very windy. Um, in terms of snow, looks like most of the snow happens after the storm moves through. So it's going to be cold on the backside of this storm. So if you're in uh, the upper Midwest so and, and the Great Lakes, looks like it's going to be a very cold um, lead up to uh, Thanksgiving and possibly continuing on to Thanksgiving itself. And we also have to be concerned about lake effect snow. We haven't had, talked about that yet this year, but we're entering into the time of year where lake effect snow can be problematic and um, we are, I believe, around the time of the year, or I guess we're a little bit earlier than we were last year when Buffalo had the really significant and unfortunately deadly lake effect snow event. Um, and there looks like there could be a pretty significant lake effect snow event uh, behind this storm Wednesday and Thursday and Friday of next week um, 
in places like Buffalo or, or nearby. So I'll have to keep an eye on that. Don't know the details yet, but uh, the general summary is that a lot of rain and wind and travel disruptions uh, from Texas and the Southern Plains up into the Great Lakes and Northeast Mid-Atlantic um, starting Monday and then going through Wednesday. The key theme for Thursday on Thanksgiving is chilly and I think dry across a lot of the country. Some flurries, though, and some snow showers in the Great Lakes for Thanksgiving. I think a lot of the West is pretty quiet, except the Northwest probably has some rain and some mountain snow. But that's a long summary, but there's a lot to talk about next week um, as we head into Thanksgiving. So definitely check ahead with your carriers if you're traveling via air or, you know, check your favorite weather app, AccuWeather, to see what the forecast is if you're traveling by road to where you're going to. Yes, always AccuWeather. Dan, can you take a second and, and define uh, the lake effect snow that you're talking about? And most people probably don't know what that is. Yeah, so I it, uh, I guess, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of familiar with, with, with it, one, as a meteorologist, and two, because I live near one of the Great Lakes. Um, but yeah, if you're not from an area that gets lake effect snow, it's different than your typical snow that just sort of falls from a, a you know, like a larger storm. Um, lake effect snow is caused by very cold air moving across relatively warmer uh, bodies of water, in this case, the Great Lakes. Um, and that temperature difference creates uh, what we call instability in the atmosphere. Um, and you have plentiful moisture, obviously, because the lakes have a lot of moisture associated with them, with the water. Um, and uh, as that air rushes across the lakes, you get lift, the air rises, and uh, the uh, given the right conditions, you get clouds to form, and then that, those clouds can produce significant uh, very narrow, usually, and very intense bands of snow. Um, and that occurs downwind of the lakes. So that depends on the wind direction, but uh, places like Buffalo, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Chicago, depending on the wind direction, um, places like in northwest Indiana, uh, all those places can receive really significant, uh, crazy totals of lake effect snow, um, including you know totals over 80, 90 inches in some cases over the course of just a couple days. Um, and there, it can be pretty dangerous because the, the, um, as we saw in Buffalo last year, the, um, like the, the rate at which a snow falls, it can fall at five, six inches per hour. Um, and it's just complete whiteout conditions and you, you can't go anywhere and, and, uh, transportation is just, you know, brought to a standstill. So it's a pretty cool, uh, phenomenon, um, to, you know, from a science standpoint, it may not be as cool if you experience it yourself and have to shovel out 80 inches of snow. That sounds pretty cool to me. In fact, very cold. <laughs> Is there anything going on in the tropics that we need to be concerned with? Um, there are some things going on, but nothing that we in the U.S. have to be concerned about. Just two quick items on that front. So um, while it was not a tropical system, it's worth mentioning what happened in South Florida the last couple of days here, um, where places like Miami, Fort Lauderdale received uh, 12 to 16 inches of rain in two days from a non-tropical system. Um, it was really a, a very, it was a pretty damaging event, in fact, for places in Miami area where they had 50 to 60 mile an hour wind gusts. Uh, and they had really, you know, significant flooding issues. That's now all wrapped up. Uh, that was a really strong system that moved across the Gulf of Mexico. Again, not tropical, but still, but very similar impacts uh, to a tropical storm. Um, that's now out of the way in Florida. Um, but there is another, um, what should become a tropical depression in the Caribbean, that's going to impact some of the islands of the Caribbean here over the next day or two to end the week. But that's going 
then out to sea and away from the U.S. And now with only a week or two left in the season, we should be done or very, very close to done with the talking about the hurricane season this year. Yeah, we can only hope. So where are you guys going off to this next week, Becky? We will be headed to um, New Jersey, but not typical New Jersey. We're going to spend Thanksgiving at the beach with Dan's parents. We had um, had plans to go earlier this fall, and they unfortunately had to be uh, postponed. So we're going to go to a place we've never celebrated Thanksgiving at before, any of us. <laughs> well, that'll be a lot of fun. What about you, Joe? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, no significant plans yet. Well, Jamie, I know you're not going anywhere for a while. Uh, we're we're hosting Thanksgiving in my house, so that's why I'm should be cleared up. I'm glad the timing happened the way it did with my uh, COVID, so I can uh, be out from under by the time Thanksgiving rolls around. Yeah, perfect. Okay, Joe. So we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics tonight. I got to get my notes up here. Fresh injury, and there's I can't believe how many pieces there are to this it's not like one injury causes one thing it's like all of these it's a whole syndrome right yeah that's correct there's uh there's actually a, a lot of different ways to die from issues related to crush injury okay so starting with that you know if you're thinking about the world as it sits right now we got two wars going on and buildings falling down and, and of course anything that's caused by a natural disaster and i know you you see a lot of that with usar um somebody has a building fall on them there's a real good chance that uh, they could have a crush injury so what does that actually look like I, I imagine it can look like a number of things but what do you typically see in a scenario like that well, you know, the, the, the classic uh, type crush injury is frequently from a building collapse. Uh, and it, it's essentially when something very heavy uh, applies pressure to some part of the body, usually uh, a large muscle mass, for a significant period of time. And that that pressure is enough to... Uh, in many cases, initially rupture muscle cells and all that sort of stuff from direct injury, but may also uh, result in uh, a, a slower injury, more of an ischemic type injury that's occurring because the the pressure on the uh, muscle tissue or whatever else is prolonged enough that uh, ischemic changes start occurring. So, Crush injury is very much a, a, a spectrum of diseases from, uh, you know, a building uh, of 50 tons laying on your leg to uh, honestly being immobile on a hard surface like a floor for many, many hours without the ability to move. Um, uh, as you might see in someone who's uh, uh, hip breaks and they fall on the bathroom floor and they're not discovered for 18 or 24 hours. Uh, those folks can have a 
uh, a mild and well compensated form of crush injury uh, as opposed to the more dramatic ones that we were talking about earlier. Yes, I, I'm taken back. I'm thinking, uh, was it Haiti you went to where you saw a lot of that? In fact, ended up having to do an amputation there. Yeah, multiple amputations in Haiti. Uh, absolutely a lot of crush injury in Haiti for sure. Uh, I have no doubt that in the current Mideast crisis, uh, there's lots of crush injury going on. And, uh, you know, we see this... Uh, injury uh, pattern and complex disease process occur in uh, almost any uh, earthquakes, uh, particularly that, that result in buildings shaking and then buildings collapsing uh, with, uh, with people inside. So uh, they, they run the gamut for sure. And I think part of what's really challenging about this disease process is that Many times uh, the the victim who's injured may survive for uh, a number of days and then dies shortly after uh, being extricated from the entrapment. And it, it's what's happening during that time frame and just before it that's very important and imperative that we recognize what's going on and uh, get aggressive in our intervention so that we do not end up with uh, a, a rescue that uh, does not have the outcome uh, that we desire uh, because of a disease process that we were not uh, paying enough attention to or aggressively trying to manage. Yeah, I want to dig more into the extrication and on-scene management piece. But looking at some of those things that, you know, once someone's out and being treated can still die from, one of those is uh, acute renal failure. Is that because of the debris that the muscles are throwing out that you have to go through the kidney? Yes, you're, you're correct. That's sort of number three or four on the list of ways to die from crush syndrome. Uh, and, and just to sort of keep this straight, let me, let me talk through those different uh, patterns because one sort of leads into another. Um, okay. So, so let's talk initially about the pathophysiology that's going on. Uh, so we end up with uh, again, primarily muscle tissue that's been, uh, actively damaged and crushed and or additional tissue that is um, become ischemic because of the pressure on it. Um, and as those cells uh, become ischemic and or have been disrupted, the contents of, uh, of those cells leaks out into the surrounding tissue. Uh, the, the primary uh, offender that is sort of the number one reason that people die fairly quickly after extrication is that uh, very high levels of potassium uh, that are inside the cell are uh, now floating around in the, uh, in the soft tissues. And as the compressive force is released and 
circulation restored to that extremity, you get a, a, a large amount of potassium that suddenly is in the central vasculature, uh, bloodstream, et cetera, uh, moves around to the heart and results in uh, lethal cardiac arrhythmias. So that's kind of the first way that you can die uh, is from hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. Uh, the, the second thing that is often going on is because those tissues have been ischemic, not having enough oxygen, blood flow, et cetera, for a long period of time, they, they, they under, uh, they, they change their metabolic pattern from aerobic, meaning using oxygen to anaerobic, not using oxygen. And uh, in an effort to generate the energy they they need for the cell to stay alive, and the anaerobic process is significantly less efficient. And one of the byproducts there is uh, significant amounts of acid, primarily lactic acid, uh, among many others. Uh, the significant acidosis that occurs related to that makes the heart all the more sensitive to the elevated levels of potassium uh, and results in uh, acid-base balances inside the body that are very disruptive to uh, other metabolic processes. So uh, the acidosis that accompanies uh, crush syndrome is often part of the problem. Uh, the the next thing that's happening and can subsequently lead to your demise is all of the um, different kinds of tissues. And by that, I mean muscle tissue and tendon and blood vessel, all that stuff that's been crushed and sort of torn and, and kind of ripped into small pieces uh, results in a tremendous amount of uh, cellular debris that's in the wound field where the crush occurred. And that stuff all also finds its way into the vascular system as you get the compression freed and restore the circulation to the, to the, the injured area. Uh, and all of that stuff is uh, results in a a response from the body to uh, things that are not supposed to be in the blood vessels floating around. So pieces of fat, pieces of tendon, um, a tree branch, uh, you know, whatever else might be in that wound that's now floating around. So you get a tremendous inflammatory response from the body, which turns on all sorts of inflammatory responders in the body. The, the clotting system uh, suddenly uh, is seeing, for lack of a better word here, uh, great disruption in the nice smooth lining of the blood vessels in the area that was damaged. And so therefore that activates all the clotting mechanisms uh, to try to seal those areas off. And so you use up all of your clotting factors uh, or you get into some very dysfunctional 
responses in the clotting system so that you generate lots and lots and lots of clots or you consume all your clotting factors and you can't clot anymore because you don't have anything left to make clots out of. So that whole stuff can be going on. Um, the, the large muscle protein called myoglobin uh, is also released from inside the cell into the tissues and finds its way into the central blood, uh, central vascular system, and subsequently ends up being trapped in the kidney, where the kidney has difficulty filtering that protein out because it's a large protein like hemoglobin. It's a pretty good-sized protein. And so it doesn't pass through the kidney very easily to be excreted, which means it plugs up the filters, uh, which is what results in renal failure uh, because the filters all get clogged up with this giant protein that can't pass through and, and be excreted. Uh, so that's the you know third or fourth way that you die a couple of weeks later of renal failure. Uh, and then the, the other thing that often happens in a somewhat delayed sense is uh, related to those last two things we were talking about, where you end up with overwhelming sepsis, uh, consumptive coagulopathies, uh, huge inflammatory responses that are wreaking havoc with the body's uh, metabolism otherwise. And so you, you end up with things like uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome or, or shock lung and some of those kind of uh, syndromes that we see later on that are usually the result of um, significant inflammatory mediators in the body being activated uh, along with a whole lot of other stuff going on that's all the things we've just been talking about. So there's a lot of different ways to die from, from crush syndrome. So you don't want to go there. Any thoughts, Jamie? Well, it just gives us you know, so much to pay attention to. In the pre-hospital setting, of course, a lot of that is not our initial problem. Um, we're more intent on the, the rescue and freeing from the uh, trap situation. But I'm wondering, Joe, what, what kind of things can we have ready once someone is freed to um, try to hold off or mitigate some of these factors? So great question. And, and really the, the, the key to uh, trying to manage this disease process. Um, so if we go back through all the things that can kill you, um, several things are happening that we need to stop. The first thing that we need to deal with is uh, a sudden increase in potassium levels associated with uh, a, a significant increase in acidity from all the lactic acid that's floating around. So we need to drive potassium back into the cells. And there are several different ways that we can do that. We can dilute the potassium out a little bit by aggressively hydrating the patient. Uh, most of those patients are uh, in a, uh, a volume-depleted state to start with because they've been trapped for a couple of days and, you know, they've had ongoing fluid losses and not a lot of fluid intake and 
all that sort of stuff. So uh, aggressive replenishment of fluids is important. Uh, medications that can uh, help to uh, protect the heart, particularly from potassium, are drugs like calcium, um, which is uh, competitive for some of the same channels that potassium goes through and helps to, to protect the heart. So we can administer calcium gluconate or um, calcium uh, in other forms, actually. Uh, to uh, help protect the heart. We want to get potassium back into the cells. One of the ways that we can do that is by administering glucose and insulin because insulin needs potassium to carry glucose back into the cell. So giving the patient sugar and insulin helps to move potassium back into the cell. Uh, we can administer albuterol, um, which is a, a, a thought of commonly as a respiratory drug, a, a beta agonist drug. But one of the great side effects of albuterol is it moves potassium back into the cell. So the administration of albuterol in these patients is often uh, extremely helpful, not only from the the potassium standpoint, but because many of them also have significant lung injury uh, going on at the same time from all the other stuff that we were talking about earlier. So that's the that's the frontline approach, uh, the initial approach to ensuring that the thing that's going to kill you first is the high potassium and the acidosis, and that we're aggressively managing those right up front. In general, that means the initiation of those medications prior to lifting off the, uh, the, the pressure that's on the crushed extremity or whatever it is, uh, uh, just before that begins to occur, and then aggressively thereafter, literally trying to monitor in real time um, the potential um, effects of high potassium and responding to them aggressively. The way we do that in the field is we watch the T wave on the EKG monitor. If we see a, a tall peaked T wave, that's indicative of high levels of potassium. And we would want to aggressively treat with the medications I mentioned earlier uh, until we see that T wave return to a more normal morphology telling us that the potassium levels are down. Joe, one more question real quick. Yes, How long do we do we consider to be the onset or the, the, the need to start thinking about these interventions? You know, two hours, four hours, six hours? Does it have to be more than that? What, what, are, what are we thinking about for the time of being trapped? That's a great question, Jamie. I, I wish the answer were really straightforward, but it's not. Um, it, it is a, a mostly ischemic type process. So, that tends to occur over hours uh, because that's how ischemic processes progress. Um, but you also have to recall that it's a it's a time versus pressure relationship. So a a very high pressure, a building laying on your thigh. Uh, is going and crushing most of it is much more likely to cause uh, a significant uh, damage and therefore onset of crush injury uh, within an hour or two. 
uh, as opposed to a, a much lighter crush that's occurring over many hours and the body has more time to, accom uh, to accommodate, to uh, respond to it, begin to, you know, do some metabolic changes internally that uh, there are time for those chemical processes to occur. So uh, it, it can occur many hours afterward, but in big crush cases, you can see it uh, in, in as short as one or two hours. Joe, given that and given everything that happens once the person is extricated, what are the situations where field amputation might be the best thing that might be life-saving? Well, the, the extrication is obviously important and, and clearly the goal. The issue here is not to not extricate the patient, but to ensure that in situations where crush is likely, the institution of therapy is begun before the, the weight is lifted off and continues after that very aggressively. So uh, the issue with these with crush syndrome in general is that the, the patient's alive in the rubble for three days and people are working feverishly to you know move the chunk of concrete. And then they get them free and throw them in a vehicle and rush them to the hospital and they die when they get to the hospital um, because nobody treated their crush syndrome, uh, even though it's been three days, right? So the, the, the issue here is that the initiation of these therapies really needs to uh, begin as they are in the rubble and aggressively uh, prepare for the, the moment when the pressure is released and they're ready to be freed so that we can prevent those bad things that are about to happen as soon as that load is off and that circulation is restored to that extremity. Gotcha. Becky or Dan, I know this isn't a meteorology question <laughs> or topic, but do you have any thoughts or questions for Joe? No, not really. I've sort of been trying to listen and take it all in. It's a pretty complex uh, medical situation, and, and you know, there, there's so there's more, right? We talked earlier about the 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 kidney problem. Part of what we can do related to that is we can uh, treat the patient's acidosis with bicarbonate, which is a, a buffering agent, which allows us to help correct their acid base balance. So that's beneficial in the early phases, right? Of the high potassium and all the other stuff that we talked about. But the correcting or, or altering the pH, the acid base balance of the body also is incredibly important for protecting the kidneys. Because if we can change the pH of the urine just a little bit, uh, and make it slightly more alkaline than normal, we can change the solubility of the myoglobin molecule that's plugging up the filter from about, I don't know, I, I don't remember the numbers here, but it, it, I, I want to say like 4% or something. It's, it's terrible, right? Almost all of it is caught in the filters to like 60 or 70% if you've alkalinized the urine. So if you can give those medications to 
change the pH of the urine to a more alkaline state, you can allow that myoglobin molecule to pass through the filters of the kidney and be excreted and therefore protect the kidney from failure later on. So there's great value in that medication. Dan, you have a question. Yeah. Joe, you mentioned like a light crush versus a heavy crush. I guess, is there certain like weight? Like how does one know if like the amount of weight, I mean, I guess, I guess in many cases it's pretty obvious that someone has had been in a situation where there has been a crush, but like, are there times where you're not sure that's the case based on the amount of weight or the situation or like, or how the weight was distributed or is that generally not a consideration? No, I, I think that's part of the real challenge, Dan. So your own body weight over many hours can cause crush. You know, I mean, the same thing that causes bed sores, that's a, that's a type of crush syndrome, right? That, that's a localized crush injury that results in ischemic damage to a localized area of tissue that ultimately dies off and leaves a big bed sore. It's when the amount of that and the body's ability to respond and adapt is overwhelmed. And so a, a, a bed sore, it, you know, rarely causes any major problems because they take a long time, hours, days, weeks to occur. And the body has time to adapt and the, you know, the output of all these bad things we're talking about is relatively slow and it's a small amount, et cetera. So it's very much a spectrum uh, of, of issues and, and there's no real clear point to say, oh, it, you know, from this point forward, this is clearly crush. It's a matter of looking at signs and symptoms of the patients, some of the things that we talk about, what does their ECG tracing look like, right? Are we seeing signs of elevated potassium levels? Oh, then maybe this could be enough to be a crush, and we're seeing a little bit of that. Is it enough we need to do anything about it? Well, we'll have to see, you know? So there, there's, uh, it requires a pretty broad perspective, and I, I think the biggest issue that I see with it is that we, we don't think about it until it's extremely obvious, and we miss a whole lot of it. So for me, the classic example is the elderly patient whose hip breaks and they fall on the bathroom floor and they, they can't move for 18 hours. And then they are finally discovered by somebody and they're, you know, picked up and they're brought to the ED and I see them in the ED and I see an elevated potassium level and their acid base balance is a little bit, you know, askew. And I look in their urine and I see signs that they have myoglobin in their urine. Um, that's crush syndrome. It's very mild and it's fairly easily treated and it's not likely to be life-threatening because it occurred over a slow period of time. But that's still crush syndrome. Uh, it, it's just not occurring so quickly that the body can't respond enough to provide some protection there. Um, another thing that comes into play here, Joe, can you define compartment syndrome? <clears throat> sure, I'll be glad to. So compartment syndrome is when the pressure inside a, 
a single compartment, uh, uh, usually in an extremity, and a, a compartment is a, an anatomical description of, uh, for example, in the, uh, in, in the lower leg, right? Uh, the, the, the muscle that fits between the two bones um, and is, uh, so it's sort of trapped by those two bones on each side. And then over the top of it, it has this very thick sheath of uh, connective fascia tissue. And, and so none of that stretches or gives very much. And so if there's an injury to that muscle by a direct blow or perhaps one of those bones breaks, that muscle begins to swell inside that compartment. And if the amount of swelling inside the compartment exceeds the, the pressure that the blood has to be able to flow in there, in other words, if the pressure inside the compartment is higher than the blood pressure, then no blood's gonna flow in there. Or more commonly, the pressure is gonna be somewhere between the systolic, the high pressure, and the diastolic, the low pressure. And so blood can get in there, but it can't get out. And so it results in more and more swelling, more and more ischemia, which leads to more and more swelling. And it becomes a vicious cycle that ultimately results in all the same stuff we saw in crush, except limited to that single compartment. Ah, uh, one last question. Um, are pediatric patients treated any differently than adults in these cases? No, they're not. Uh, they, they are a little bit less likely to have significant crush syndrome uh, because their muscle masses are less. Uh, they're, uh, you know, on the, on the very lower limits of age, their bones are much more pliable. You know, in other words, the spaces can adapt a little better. Uh, they tend to <laughs> they tend to bounce more than they break. Um, and so they, they may be a little bit less sensitive to crush in general. Uh, but the, the issues related to crush, the pathophysiology and the treatments are all exactly the same. Becky or Dan, any final questions or thoughts? Just that it makes sense, the pediatric response. Um, they're so sort of pliable with, you know, their yeah, kids bones have been fully formed and <laughs> flexible. Yes. Yes. Very they're flexible. Like, <laughs> like Nothing more for me. Okay. Um, gosh, Joe, that's, you're such an expert on that topic. I wish you were around during my career, because this is such a complicated situation. Jamie, I'm going to throw it back to you. No, it's it's a great topic. We've we visited it before on the show a few years back, and I think it's always good to revisit it again periodically because, as you said, Joe, it, it's probably not recognized as often as it should be in the pre-hospital setting, especially. Uh, and and we can we can be more vigilant. I think. Is, is what the lesson we can take away from this. Um, and, and that's an educational issue. So we, we come back around and it's always full circle to where and how we can learn about these things. And I know this is something I'm sure you cover quite a bit when you cover your USAR classes and things like that, um, talking about how you encounter this in the field. 
Well, no question about it, Jamie. It, it's definitely a, a significant part of the USAR world. And I think from EMS in general, we need to be definitely paying attention to this. Even if you look at it in a very rudimentary fashion of saying you, you put people at risk and you do tremendous amounts of work to rescue somebody only to have them die of a treatable disease condition, you know, an hour after you've done all your work. Uh, it, 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 it's not a good return on investment, we'll say. Uh, from, uh, from the standpoint of Paragon Medical Education Group and all the classes and education you all do, um, tell us a little bit about what you have coming up on the horizon. I know the holidays are coming soon, but you've, you've got a busy new year, I'm sure, coming after that. And um, where can people find out more about what you're doing? Well, we always welcome folks to reach out to us. Uh, you can find us on the web at uh, paragonmedicaleducationgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group uh, or always through the Disaster Podcast. Um, we have a couple of things coming up early next year. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, uh, military special operations stuff that's uh, cranking up for us. So always fascinated by that stuff. Excellent. And uh, Dan, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, or, sorry, X, I guess, uh, at WXDepot, D-E-P-O, and in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. And Becky? Uh, mostly just the Disaster Podcast Facebook group these days. Awesome. We'll, we'll watch for you there, and, and we have any questions, we'll definitely ask. Uh, Sam, how about you? the usual social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 in our Facebook community and uh, disasterpodcast.com. Jamie? And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations. So please friend or follow me there. And uh, always in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group uh, and at disasterpodcast.com. Good topic tonight, Sam. I'm glad we were able to revisit this. And and, uh, it's one of those things that I think we we just don't think about as often as we probably should. So it's good to cover it. We have a lot of uh, first responders out there in our audience that could cover something for them that can actually save a life someday. So thank you for that, Joe.